Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation, live from downtown Jersey City in that great state of New Jersey. Happy to be here. Thanks for joining me here in the States. I know we have listeners all over the world, but here in the States, we are just about to celebrate the American holiday of Thanksgiving. And uh, if some of you are listening live on the road, drive safe, fly safe. Hope hope you uh, have a good Thanksgiving, good celebration. I want to tell everybody, I'm not going to be here uh, next week. We're very lucky that uh, station manager Ken Friedman is going to be filling in for me next week. So this is my uh, this is my show before I uh, I take a week off, and then I'll I'll see you in two weeks. But I'm really glad you're here tonight. I've got a great interview for you this evening, and it it um, it it fits in. It connects to last week's show. Did you hear last week's interview with Ed Park? That's one to catch in the archives if you didn't if you didn't hear it. Uh, yet. Ed Park is a novelist who wrote a book called, a new novel called Same Bed, Different Dreams. And we had a wide-ranging conversation last week about the book and the themes and Korean history and 80s pop culture and a dystopian tech company and a lot of things uh, in the middle. But near the end, end of the interview, Ed said something kind of interesting, which was that he likes to type on an analog typewriter and he likes to type on the type this is this is how he he writes sometimes is uh typing on the typewriter while he is listening to a record an actual record on a vinyl record on a record player not a digital uh device in sight and a couple of people noticed that on the comment board and, and uh, we're, we're calling that out as a, as a good practice, admirable, interesting, inspiring. I forget exactly the words they used. And I thought, well, that's going to be a great segue to this week's show because this week I, I'm, I'm running uh, an, an, an episode. I want you to hear me now. I'm going, I'm going to run an interview about technology that I am excited about. So don't let anybody say that this guy, all he does is complain. No, 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 no. Tonight we're going to be celebrating technology and it's digital technology. In fact, it's a website that I'm excited about. (laughs) Have I built it up enough? But as I say, there is a connection to Ed Park's comment uh, at the end of last week's interview. Because in here, I'll I'll reveal reveal the uh, connection. My guest this evening is Chris DeDecker. He is uh, a Belgian, originally living in Barcelona, Spain, and he runs out of Barcelona. He runs a website uh, called Low Tech Magazine, and Low Tech Magazine, true to its name, runs articles about. Well, you'll you'll hear about it about uh, celebrating. Uh, low-tech solutions to pressing problems or to low-tech uh, low-tech technologies that help us answer interesting questions. We'll get into all that in, in the interview. But 
there is a place, this is what Chris Decker is saying, and, and, and he, his, his magazine uh, agrees with what Ed Park was saying last week. There is a place for low technology solutions in our lives, and they can work, and they can be sustainable, and they can be helpful. And the, the thing about Low Tech Magazine is that it not only, as I say, celebrates low tech solutions, it walks the walk. And, and here's what I mean by that. Low Tech Magazine, the website, is a solar-powered website. And that means that there is a web server in, in I think it might be in Chris Decker's apartment or on his balcony. He describes it during the interview. This, in other words, this website is not run through some um, cloud, one of the big tech behemoths that that often run so many websites out there. It's Low Tech Magazine doesn't have any hooks, doesn't have any hosting by any of those big tech uh, giants. It's hosted locally in Barcelona on a web server that itself is powered by solar power. And that means, as you, you'll hear Chris talk about, and if you, if you go to the Low Tech Magazine website, uh, which is at lowtechmagazine.com, you'll see right front and center when you go, go to the website, it says this is a solar-powered website. This website sometimes goes offline because I guess there's a certain amount of um, power or battery power that it can charge up for overnight. But if, if that web server goes long enough without sunlight, if there are enough cloudy days, if there's enough uh, lack of, of sun, that website eventually is going to go down and it's just going to just disappear from the internet until the sun comes out again. So uh, Chris Decker is really living his commitment to sustainable solutions. I think this is a really inspiring and interesting uh, project that uses digital technology in a new way, ironically, new way for a, for a low-tech magazine site. Um, so I'm going to play you this interview, and then I think we're going to have a few minutes after I finish the interview to, to talk a little bit more. Uh, if you want to join in the live listener chat, go to wfmu.org, click playlist and comments, and if you're listening to an archive or you're listening to a podcast version in the future, you can go and find the links to the articles and the website that we're talking about. Find it on the playlist. Go to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm, and click the playlist link for November 20, 2023. And with that, friends, let's go ahead and listen to my interview with Chris Decker, founder of Low Tech Magazine, here on Tectonic on WFMU. Chris Decker, welcome to Tectonic. Thank you. It's nice to have you on the show, Chris. I've been a fan for a long time of your online magazine, actually online and print. It's called Low Tech Magazine. It is based in Barcelona, where you're based. Low Tech Magazine is a solar-powered website. If people go to the website, which is at lowtechmagazine.com, they'll see right up front, it says, this is a solar-powered website, which means it sometimes goes offline. <laughs> You've written about a lot over the years uh, since you founded the magazine in 2007, but let's just start with a basic concept. 
what does it mean to run a solar-powered website? Yeah, this idea for a solar-powered website was in my mind for uh, for a long time because it kind of aligns with one of an important theme on the website, which is if you, as a society, you want to transition to renewable energy, you also have to learn to adjust your energy demand to the weather and the seasons, which is something that we we totally lost when we switched to fossil fuels because, yeah, you can use them whenever you want. I, I know how to build solar installations, like small-scale solar systems, but I didn't know how to uh, design a website well, and I also didn't know how to host a, a server myself. And so I I found the right people. Also, I got Rul on board, who's a friend of me, a network artist. He knows how to build servers. And so we built up the self-hosted uh, website here in my apartment. So the solar panel is on the balcony. And then right next to it is the solar charge controller, a very small battery, and then a um, very small server that uses like one or two watts of power. And indeed, if you if you go off the grid and you go solar powered, then you have to make you have to find some compromise between uptime and and costs basically because batteries um, they have very short life times they are very expensive so you don't want to uh, I mean it would be nice to be hundred percent of the time online but then I need to invest a lot of money in batteries and not just that also a lot of energy we kind of calculated what would be the optimal um, compromise between costs and sustainability on the one hand and uptime on the other hand. And then we ended up with an uptime of like between 95 or eight, 98%. So say with Low Tech Magazine, it's unavailable for like 20 to, to 30 days um, a year. And mostly in winter, obviously. Now it's going to start going offline pretty regular. And then in summer, it's always online. I'm looking at the website right now and it says your uptime, meaning the amount of time the site has been continuously available is listed right now as one week, one day, eight hours, 15 minutes. Yeah. As you say, in winter, that uptime is likely to go down. I mean, it'll, it'll, the website will be unavailable more frequently. Is that just because of the lack of solar energy uh, available when it's, when it's more cloudy in the winter? Yeah, so um, Barcelona is pretty sunny, but in in winter, of course, most importantly, the days are shorter, so there is just less light. Uh, plus, you have more chance of of rain or or cloudy weather. Uh, but yeah, I know I I can basically when I'm traveling, I can follow the weather in at my my hometown just by looking at the website. <laughs> so I know what kind of weather it is. If it's during the day and the website is down, you know that it's raining. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I even see it when it's like not raining but still cloudy. That's like say two in the afternoon, and the website is not fully the battery is not fully charged. That means that there is not full sun. Now, do you get emails from people who are asking when it's going to come up, or do they have comments <laughs> about when they go to the site wanting to read one of your articles or one of your contributors' articles, and it's down? What do they say? Well, it can be confusing because, of course, when the website is down, there's no way to communicate that to the potential visitors. So when you when you type in the web address, you just get um, Google cannot find this site or whatever search engine you, you use or, or browser. 
and so people were like yeah but you cannot do that you have to set up some some message there and then we were like okay we're willing to do that but to do that you actually need a second server to show that one page that yeah this is a solar power website and and it's not always online but then you kind of defeat the whole the whole purpose of the thing so there's no other way than yeah just sorry it's down it can be a bit confusing and and i'm not sure how how to solve that except for yeah people have to get used to websites not not always being online i guess and i think that must be one of your messages with low tech magazine that if we are pursuing a more sustainable future, there's going to be some changes in our level of convenience with different services, right? Yeah. We can't have a sustainable future with backups of backups of servers and all of the manufacturing and the energy infrastructure that comes with keeping everything online all the time guaranteed. What is the message that you're trying to deliver with Low Tech Magazine in terms of sustainability and where we're headed or where you would like us to be headed? Well, I could explain that in different ways, but one of the main points I want to communicate is that there is a lot of room in modern society to uh, really radically lower uh, the use of energy and other resources while still maintaining a yeah really modern lifestyle like things that we have gotten used to like the internet um, because like i said earlier like the the main costs and the main energy investment is in the energy storage so if you say we switch to uh, renewable energies like wind and solar uh, but we want to have everything 100 percent online well then you're just not changing anything because you need so much fossil fuels to build this whole infrastructure that in the end you're just gonna yeah it's a different type of technology different energy source but it's just as dependent on fossil fuels and just emits as much carbon em uh, emissions and so on so and at the same time you cannot say that if you look at the solar power website like it it uses like at least 10 times less energy than than an average website and and probably more than that because this the server with with the high traffic is just using two watts of power so it's really very little and it's a very small solar panel but it's still a website you cannot say that i've come back to the middle ages or the stone age or even the 19th century i mean well you could maybe say i got back to the 1990s because the, the website design it's a static website it's inspired by the first websites ever made Often people have this idea that there's only two ways. We either uh, go the high-tech way and we keep uh, developing increasingly sophisticated technologies or we, we, we end back in the Stone Age. And, and, but there's a thousands of possibilities in between. And I think they're very interesting because actually I don't want to go back to the Stone Age, also not to the Middle Ages. I like modern, modern uh, accomplishments. It's just that they are being used in such a foolish way. And you see it with everything, like the, the website. You can tell exactly the same story about cars, for example. Cars uh, are a huge problem in terms of, of sustainability. But uh, if you look how they evolved, if you put, I don't know, any brand of or model of car, you put one of, of today, you put it next to one of the 1970s, then, yeah, you immediately see the difference. The thing is twice as big. It's three times as heavy. There's a, like so much more uh, motor power. It's full of electronics and, and luxuries. And 
well, both things are car. And if you downsize that car, then you can keep having cars with with the fraction of the energy use that that you're using now. And it doesn't even matter if they're electric or just running on gasoline. It's, it's of secondary importance. The, what you need to do is to to make them smaller and lighter and and yeah, less less comfortable. I mean, not the big entertainment screen in the in the dashboard, for example. And so most things that we are so kind of uh, attached to we could keep them for most of the time and in in most of their present form i mean not really always their present form but still a, a small car gets you from a to b just as as the big car so and the, the low tech website communicates the content just like the high tech website so that is the main message i try to bring that yeah well we could easily solve this with small sacrifices like the website's 95% of the time online but that's a lot and there's as little reason to bring that back to say 50% or 40% uh, it doesn't bring you so much advantage the battery gets still a bit smaller but not much while if you want to go from 95 to 100% people go like yeah if you're at 95 then why don't you go to 100 but i have to i would have to multiply battery storage by a factor of 7 or 8 to guarantee that the website never goes offline so that's where the um, the challenge is, I think. It's that last 5% that gets us. Exactly. You're saying we can have websites and they can be sustainable and we can have them available with 95% uptime. We can have cars that take us from point A to point B. We can have gas stations. But it's that last 5% where we say we want the website to be up 99.999% of the time, so we can watch our cat videos all the time. We want our cars to be gigantic behemoths with, with mini movie theaters installed inside, so we can watch our cat videos while we drive down the highway. <laughs> also, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like what you're saying, Chris, that there's a middle path for us. It's not abandoning all the technology, but it's obviously not continuing on this unsustainable path we're on, it's choosing a path where we're adopting technology in the right way. Do you think that if by some miracle governments began embracing the low-tech magazine approach, do you think that would solve the climate crisis? I mean, do you think this middle way of going to the 95% point does that solve the sustainability problem or are there other structural things that we'd have to do as well? Well, that's uh, quite a question. <laughs> yeah, first, can it solve climate change? I don't know. I'm not a climate um, scientist, but what I understood is that we see effects that are kind of delayed. And so I don't know what the emissions that we have now from, from which years to which years they, they refer. If this, what we see now is from the 1970s, or then, wow, the worst is yet to come. So, And of course, if you stop, even if, if we would stop emitting carbon emissions now, then, yeah, it's not going to be solved tomorrow. It's going to uh, take a while. So, And then there's people saying it's too late. So I cannot really answer that. It's just that, of course, what you do then as a human, you you try, but I cannot guarantee that it works. Uh, second, governments, yeah, governments, theoretically, at least they have the power to make these changes. The problem I see there is that governments are not always 
defending the public interest, but they are at least protecting and helping an, in, an industrial economic system that is not really wanting to go in that direction. Because why do cars always get bigger? Why do uh, software applications and websites get heavier? It's because these companies are trying to constantly to innovate and push new products onto people. And then you could say like, why are they doing that? Because they're yeah, probably on the stock market and they are also forced to do that or they or they die. So we have an economic system that is not really compatible with the low-tech future. I think that's pretty clear. And that is the biggest challenge because changing an economic system is not, not so easy. Yeah. But if I run my website on my, I mean, okay, it's not, um, it's not the New York Times, but it's also not a small website. It's really high traffic website. It runs on a two watt uh, server and a 30 watt solar panel at the moment. So then knowing that we, uh, that, I don't know, 2 million people a year, visitors um, see, see the pages of Lotech magazine, then you cannot really say that this is a big burden on the environment. One of the things I appreciate about the aesthetics of Lotech magazine, the website, as you said, it was inspired by the earliest websites in the 1990s. And you have gone back to the practice of using low resolution images. All of the images on the magazine website are black and white and sort of uh, pixelated or grainy. And that makes the image a lot lighter as a file to send over the internet. And I have to say, I really like that aesthetic. I mean, it fits the site thematically, of course, but just by themselves, the images are interesting to look at. And somehow they're just as engaging or or maybe more so than some of the high resolution, full color graphics you see on every other website. What are some of the other things that you did to try to reduce the bandwidth of the content on the website? Yeah, so about the images, indeed, the dithering uh, proved to be a very uh, popular uh, design choice, but it's not really necessary to compress your images to a sustainable size, let's say. You don't need dithering. You can actually compress them in a in such a way that they look quite normal. Uh, but what we we showed, we wanted to show the infrastructure behind the website because people have this idea that the internet is some kind of thing that floats around in the in the air in the cloud, but of course it's not. There is a massive infrastructure behind it. Uh, that's all metal and and electronics and and fossil fuels, and so that's why we wanted to show the compression. That's why we showed the battery meter also, because we want to fight that uh, that idea of something kind of. Immaterial. It's very material thing. The internet. Yeah. And so we noticed that for like what you say for many images it works really well and they look even better. You could argue, but for some images it doesn't work at all. Like a graph or something. It really depends. Like for the old black and white, originally black and white images, it works really great. For some, not. And that's why we now added the option that you can reveal the original picture. The problem is that. The photos that we take and the images that we use and the videos, they come from our our digital cameras or our our phones. 
and every several years the 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 resolution doubles so you buy a camera now it has like my camera is like 10 years old if i buy a new one now it has like a file size that is way bigger than than the one i used before and this is great if you want to print posters or or print and stuff but the fact is it usually ends up on a website so you have it's the same story as with the car and it's it's totally it has such a file weight that is completely ridiculous like to to upload a 20 megabyte file to put it on your instagram it makes no sense no nobody sees the difference because they're all looking at it on tiny um iphone screens exactly and then you have this super high resolution for for a tiny screen that is and and the image is actually big enough to show on a cinema screen that's right that is the that's the foolishness so and it's not just one image when people upload their photos you know they always take 10 or 15 of the same scene and so they're yes. uploading dozens of 10 or 20 megabyte photos completely unnecessarily yeah so there's a huge waste that's actually if you would would um do something about it nobody would even notice so you save like i don't know 95 percent of all the resource use and nobody doesn't even notice when the pandemic hit in Europe, there was like uh, the first days, there was a moment that they were like, oh, damn, the, the internet is going to crash because too many people went online all the, at the same time. And so what, what the European Union did, they, was, they, they made a call to Netflix and they said, hey, guys, could you lower your resolution a bit? And they did that and it was solved. So there also you see that, and nobody noticed. I mean, most people don't watch their Netflix on a cinema screen. So it's so easy to solve these things, but okay. So you you asked for other uh, design choices. The the main choice, I think, more important even than the, the images is the fact that it's a static website. That's the style from the early '90s. So so what you do when you visit Low Tech Magazine, you enter this this folder of of documents and you click on on the article that you want to read. So the server just has to serve that that document, open that document. While um, modern websites are dynamic websites. And that means that they have to generate from the moment somebody asks a page to watch a page, the page has to be made. So the server, every time somebody asks for it, has to generate the whole thing, which, of course, is much more uh, resource intensive. So you're offloading a lot of the processing to the user's own hardware rather than serving it up every time from your own uh, server in Barcelona. Yeah, and that saves a lot of uh, of resource use because, for instance, like most sites have a logo, and then you every time you ask for a page, the server has to send this logo, which is an image, to the client, to the visitor, and we don't do that. We don't have a logo. We have this kind of typographic move that uh, you put two symbols together and it becomes a, a an arrow. That's our identity, and yeah, there's there's no even on the side of the of the visitor. There's not really extra energy use that you introduce. It's a very elegant way of creating technology and publishing online that reminds me of something you you write. I think this was on your own personal site, kristadecker.com. You write that Low Tech Magazine refuses to assume that every problem has a high-tech solution. I really liked that. Um, (laughs) That there are problems out there, maybe most of our problems out there are not best solved with high technology. Maybe we use technology to help solve them, but perhaps it's simpler technology 
Maybe we even draw on older technology or older modes of thought, like 1990s era website design. It gives us a solution that's more sustainable, it's more flexible, and it's less destructive overall than the practices that most companies are engaging in these days. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'm your host. We are halfway through my interview with Chris Dedecker, founder of Low Tech Magazine, which is a solar-powered website based on Chris's balcony in Barcelona, Spain. And as we said, if if the if the uh, solar panel does not get enough sunlight, the website just goes offline. <laughs> totally. And you can log on to the website right now and see what the uptime looks like. It's, uh, it's been doing well so, so far. If you'd like to join in the live listener comments, go to WFMU.org, click playlist and comments. Or as I said earlier, the playlist link in the future will be housed at tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H, tonic.fm. And you can see what people were chatting about and get all the links to what Chris and I are talking about. Let's go ahead and listen to the second half of my interview with Chris Decker from Low Tech Magazine here on Tectonic on WFMU. One of the new projects you have at Low Tech Magazine is a series of books. The first one, I believe, is called How to Build a Low Tech Internet. Yeah, but it's actually not the first book. We actually started with a chronological series in 2019. So we brought out the whole archive of Low Tech Magazine in three volumes, and then one volume with the comments on all the articles. Oh, that's right. This is why I said at the beginning, Low Tech Magazine is both online and print. Yeah. There's a several volume series of print books that contain all of the articles and, as you say, the comments, the reader comments on... Uh, the articles, so that if someone wants to read Low Tech Magazine and it happens to be cloudy in Barcelona at that moment, if they have the print book, they can pick it up. And what do you know? The, the uptime for print books is very good, isn't it, Chris? It's extremely good. Um, and more, I mean, it also, you can, you can go sit on the beach the whole day and read it in the sun, which is hard on a screen. The battery never dies. Uh, it can be stored not forever, but for a long time. Um, you don't have uh, the problem of software compatibility and and stuff like that. So it's so the books had several had several intentions with that. First, um, well, if you don't like it, that the website is offline now and then, then get the books because then uh, kind of uh, solves the problem. And second, to to store the the content of Low Tech Magazine for the future, because no website lives forever, and no author uh, either. So, um, and this thing with digital, we are creating so much content, but how much of that is going to be accessible in I don't know thirty, forty years? Because you need special combination of software and hardware that is not so evident that you have that in in thirty years. So the book is hard to beat in that sense. 
And um, of course, if you really want your, your writings to uh, last as long as possible, you have to write them in stone, as we did 5,000 years ago. So interestingly, like the, the kind of uh, storage of, of information, we have never done it as well as we did it 5,000 years ago, because then it lasts forever. And what we do now is it has a very short lifetime. It's, of course, uh, you have to be selective more in the content, but also that's also part of uh, lowering the, the footprint, I guess. Like, uh, yeah, we publish a lot of information uh, nowadays. I think in one day in this century, we, we produce as much as we did in the first 10,000 years. So, But there was actually a, a third reason why we published books. And yeah, that's the very banal. Yeah, I also have to survive. And uh, the old low-tech magazine was running on advertisements, like the typical Google AdSense uh, things, which, yeah, it doesn't work that well to start with. And second, it's a huge problem in itself, both in terms of energy use. So it's also a dynamic system. It's not a static. You could you could have static advertisements, but that's not what Google offers. And then the whole privacy and, and um, yeah, data collection is obviously also not, I'm not a huge fan of that. So... I constantly need to watch out that I'm trying to innovate like in my own work to be as sustainable as possible, but it's a business in the sense that I need to live from it and pay the rent from it. It's not something that will make me rich and it's also not what I'm desiring, but I need to be able to survive. So it's always a difficult um, choice to make. I like that idea that if you are publishing with low-tech tools, and with lower bandwidth available, you need to be very thoughtful about what it is you're going to put up. And indeed, if listeners go to the Low Tech Magazine website, and I'll put a link on the playlist, people should take a look. They'll see that there's a very high signal to noise ratio on the website. There's a bunch of articles, but each one of them is thoughtful. There's not the chaff of just publishing content that we see on so many other sites. You're pursuing something that is pretty much the opposite of the approach, <laughs> the dominant approach in technology, Chris. Yeah, that's. I actually remember that from when I started Low Tech Magazine in 2007. Um, at that time, the advice was for bloggers, because that's what it was called by then. It was a blog. Publish often and publish short posts. And I thought, well, I'm going to do it the other way around. I'm going to publish a long post, really well-researched, and just now and then, whenever it's finished. And it takes, like most articles, are years in the making. So there are huge gaps sometimes in publishing because also I have the habit of starting new articles before I end older ones. So I have a huge uh, backlog of articles under construction. But I thought when, when I read that advice and heard everyone was telling it to me, it's like, why? But why does it have to be short and regular uh, as if people only want that? I think there's a lot of people who are actually interested to read an article that's really changing their their view on, on something. Yeah, that's why what I always uh, have have stuck to. And, and I meanwhile, other many other websites also do that. I'm not the only one uh, these days to, to write long, long reads. It has become a, also a niche in the in the, on the Internet. One of the articles that you published in November 2022 is a good example of this a provocative piece called, What if we replace guns and bullets with bows and arrows? Yeah. <laughs> I thought this was really interesting. First of all, very well researched. 
going into the history of archery, uh, both a cultural history. I learned that archery training was mandatory for males in England for a long time. I didn't know that. But also the physics of arrows versus projectiles um, shot from a gun. Of course, I had never thought of this, but it makes sense that as you write in the piece, a bullet after it travels a certain distance is losing a lot of its kinetic energy and eventually just plunks down onto the ground. Whereas an arrow, if it's shot up at a, let's say a 45 degree angle, the further it travels towards the target, the more energy it's building up due to gravity. I don't want listeners to get the wrong idea. Low Tech Magazine is is not a pro armaments magazine writing <laughs> writing no, no, about no. lethal technology, not at all. But if anything, you you brought it together at the very end, showing the parallels between the bow and arrow argument and one of the more frequent topics you write about, which is bikes instead of cars. You write about the benefits of reintroducing these older, simpler technologies. You say this follows the same thinking behind other low-energy strategies, such as switching from cars to bicycles. The bike and the bow are both highly efficient, human-powered technologies that would be advantageous to human and planetary health. That's a constant theme in your writing, isn't it? Trying to find new technologies that maybe we could consider reverting back to older versions. Yeah, so this was indeed quite a special article, actually a series of articles. I mean, as a kid, I I, I, I shot the bow, and then I, I started again some years ago, and I got really fascinated into the history and, and also just the shooting, because it's a, it's a physical thing, but it's also a mental, it's kind of a Zen meditation-like uh, exercise. So I obviously wanted to write about that rich history, but I also thought like I realized it was controversial and it took me a long time to write it, to finish it, because I was kind of a bit scared for the reactions. But it became more a piece about, yeah, what is sustainability and how, how do we approach this? Because the, the funny thing is that when you start, when you promote the bicycle, everyone gets it and it's like, yeah, good. And then when you do the bow is very similar to the bicycle in that sense. It's human powered. You can make it yourself. I mean, it's easy to maintain and it costs little energy. It's like, yeah, then people go like, no, 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 no. And then, then I go like, what, why no? Because we need to get rid of, of weapons. And I'm like, yeah, I agree about that. But we're not, I mean, just look at where we are at the moment. Um, and to get, of course, to, to get back to from cars to bikes is already proven very hard. I mean, there's little countries where, where, or no countries where the bike rules. So imagine doing the same for weapons and from going from firearms to, to bows and arrows. But then that made me decide, well, if, if you cannot imagine that, then how, how are you going to imagine doing all these other things that you, um, that you plan to do? Because for all these things, you need global cooperation. Of course, it is probably, it sounds unrealistic to, to decide as a global society, we go back to the bow and arrow. But then if you cannot do that, we can also not do it with the bicycle. Right. So yeah, um, it was a kind of special uh, piece that I had to write. I also felt like you're being provocative there. I don't, I didn't feel like you were seriously going to pursue 
a campaign of switching all military action over to medieval technology, you're making an argument to get people to think about technology in a new way, which then applies to others, as you said. Yeah, you said that very good. Although I also noticed that lately, uh, say in the last 20 years, low-tech warfare, actually, um, you see that more and more these high-tech armies are being um, hurt by very low-tech means. And, and there is, um, there's actually an, uh, one of the references in the article is by a uh, military general who basically makes the same point. It's like, if you, if you support on high-tech armies, you depend a lot on your supply lines, you depend on, on a whole infrastructure, and you are actually very vulnerable, which is not the case if you use very simple weapons. So there is indeed, I mean, this was largely a provocative uh, article, but at the same time, I'm not so sure if uh, the high-tech warfare will uh, continue to, to dominate. There's just one other thing I wanted to ask you about, Chris. Recently, you ran a workshop about how to build a bike generator. This focused on converting an exercise bike into what you call a human power plant. What's happening here? Yeah, I've always wanted to build a bike generator. And two years ago, I got another intern, Marie Verde, who... Um, with who I, I set out the plan actually was to build a human-powered website for a, a side project I'm working on in the Netherlands, which is about human power. And we discovered that it's actually um, a human-powered website is not possible because it would be a similar website as the, the solar web from Lotech magazine, which means it used very little power. First, we thought you, ah, but then if we have a small battery, we just pedal 10 minutes, the battery is full, and then the website can run for 24 hours. But that's not how it works. The battery just doesn't let it charge that fast. So you have to pedal for four or five hours every day to charge this battery, and you will have almost no resistance on the pedal. So it's not even a workout. And that made us concentrate on the, the bike generator itself, like um, how can we make this thing more practical? Because you see them sometimes in train stations or airports, and then there, people use them to, to charge their phone. And what we learned by building these bike generators, like it's completely ridiculous because this machine can, can produce 100 watts and a phone maybe needs five or 10. So what you have to do is to charge 10 phones at the same time. Then it makes sense. Then you have some, some exercise at least. So what we did, we built a bike generator with a sort of control panel that looks like a, like the dashboard of a of a of an airplane almost, that you can open lots of circuits simultaneously and and operate a host of devices on different voltages at the same time, and then you can very precisely regulate the resistance on the pedals, as you would in a in a in a gym, and at the same time you're producing um, quite some power. So I integrated it in my solar system because I have a solar power website, but my apartment is also solar powered. So I connected the bike generator to the same uh, system as the solar panels on the balcony. And then on these cloudy days in winter, yeah, okay, damn, we are without light. Uh, let's go sit on the bike for an hour and it's solved. And not just that, you also keep yourself warm. So in summer, this bike here in Barcelona, it, yeah, it's it's gathering dust. Nobody's using it. It's way too hot. And it's, and it's not necessary because there's enough solar power. But in winter, it's cold here. I don't have a heating system like most people here. 
there's little sun, so this bike solves it all. Just an hour on the bike keeps you warm and it keeps you warm for like an hour or an hour and a half afterwards. You heat up the room for the others and you have produced energy. So it's not just a, a power plant, it's also a heating appliance in that way. We built this bike, we presented it, we made a manual, we put it online like open source. And then came um, a museum in Paris wanted it to put on an exhibition. And then I said, well, <laughs> I need it, so I cannot give it to you. And then they <laughs> gave some money to build another one. And then the same happened with the project in Rotterdam. And so now we're building bike generators as a as an extra uh, job. <laughs> <laughs> I never planned to be a, a bike generator uh, manufacturer but i'm also not gonna become that but but still it's it's a lot of fun to do your magazine publisher a book publisher and a bike generator manufacturer we're not gonna start a factory for sure but i guess after i don't know how many uh, more bike generators i'm gonna build but after a while i'm gonna get tired of the of the subject i suppose <laughs> and i'm gonna build something else but for now, it's fun also because we open it up as a workshop. People can just pass by and participate. And often uh, we learn more from them than they from us, or at least the same. So it's also kind of because Marie is very much interested into uh, do-it-yourself approaches. And um, so it's also kind of experiment in how to build things together. Because it's very hard to build things alone. Like for a bike generator, for example, you need a lot of uh, knowledge of mechanics and of electronics. And those two are usually not in one person. A solar website, the same. You have you need someone who knows about solar energy, but someone who knows about uh, servers also and self-hosting them. So it's always finding the right people to make things like that, or it's never gonna, it's, it's never gonna work. Your range of talents is so impressive, Chris. Thank you. <laughs> Other than reading Low Tech Magazine, and maybe that's the best way, how should people follow what you're doing so they learn about your next projects? Yeah, so this you're kind of referring, I think, to the the social media. Knowing you, Chris, it could be some human powered. I don't. Maybe you have brought back the passenger pigeon. <laughs> That's on my list to have a pigeon powered internet. But we're actually um, because with this whole social media, I've I've never liked them. Also, I since I'm I'm publishing for quite some time, so the first years I gathered a huge following on StumbleUpon. That's a social medium that that nobody knows anymore. Then came Facebook, and then after a few years, you have like fifteen thousand people following you. And then Facebook says, "Ha, you want to reach your fifteen thousand followers? Yeah, pay for it." Okay, and then it was Twitter, and now, uh, yeah, I don't know what's happening to Twitter, but it's. It's becoming more weird every day. So I kind of lost my uh, my confidence in, in these social medias. Like you put a lot of effort there to get followers and then they disappear. Yeah. So I'm kind of uh, ahead a bit enough of them. We have Marie is doing the Instagram account. I still have the Facebook and the, and the Twitter. But on the solar web, we are now making a, kind of working on the about pages. One of the page is going to be events. So that's very kind of um, modest at the moment, but there the idea is to, because I do a lot of talks and workshops and all these things, uh, radio programs, to list them all there, like uh, the upcoming and the, the ones that have happened. Of course, it's usually when I do something uh, where I am physically, it's it's in Europe because I don't fly, so it's hard to get out of, of here. 
So I, I spend a lot of time sitting in trains and buses and boats and, and on bikes. But yeah, so every month there are several things happening. Well, I will list links to Low Tech Magazine and your site and the Human Power Plant website on the playlist so that listeners can take a look. I hope you'll keep in touch, Chris. You're doing great work. It's inspiring and gives us a vision of a new way that we can develop technology. And I really thank you for being on the show today. You're welcome. Thank you for the invitation. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst, and I will be your host for the remaining nine minutes of the show, at which time the great Dave Mandel comes into Studio A and presents you with another fabulous episode of It's Complicated. It's a prog rock show. Then after that, we've got Bad Animals from Amanda and Jim the Poet, and after that, we've got Brother Daniel Blumen and his eponymous show from 9 p.m. Eastern on to midnight. So just stay tuned. Just keep listening. If you're listening to an archive or a podcast, the file will terminate before you get to those shows, but you can find them in the archives at WFMU.org. All great shows. We're really lucky to have this, this community and this resource. And we're lucky to have Chris Decker some of his time to talk about his project, Low Tech Magazine, uh, which you can find a link to on the playlist, and you can see what the uptime is. It is up right now as I'm, as I'm checking it this evening. And uh, we had a good conversation on the comment board about some of uh, Chris Decker's uh, comments and his themes and some of his positions on technology. One of the one of the main things that I want to underline in what Chris was saying was this idea that Low Tech Magazine, as it says, refuses to assume that every problem has a high tech solution. Wouldn't the world be a better place if if more people and companies and institutions uh, embrace that kind of philosophy. Why do we have to assume, when we see a problem, why do we have to assume that right away we need to throw technology at it? And not just any technology. It has to be the latest, so-called greatest technology, which, you know, at, at this moment would, of course, be AI. You know, if, if we're having trouble uh, dispersing health care reimbursements, we'll throw some AI at it. Uh, we're having bad traffic on the highways. We'll, we'll throw AI at it. Um, we're not, this is one from, from the headlines from a few months ago at the beginning of the fall, the beginning of the American school year. We're having trouble finding enough bus drivers to pick up kids and drive them to school on the, on the yellow school buses. Uh, throw AI at it. You know, even when there is an obvious, <laughs> there's an obvious 
solution to some of these problems, like how about we pay the bus drivers more so we'll fix the bus driver shortage? No, 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 no. Let's throw AI at it. Let's throw not just any technology. Let's throw the latest and so-called greatest technology that we can to solve this problem. Uh, look, that floor is looking a little dirty. Throw AI at it. I mean, just, it, it, and, and I'm not kidding. I, I saw a, a headline recently about an, a, a supposed AI-powered vacuum cleaner. I mean, everything has to be AI-powered now. Uh, and whatever the, whatever the next thing is in another year or two, it's going to be, that's going to be the latest and so-called greatest that everything is going to be combined with. You know, a year ago it was the metaverse, and two years ago it was, is, it was Bitcoin. Um, everything is going to be Bitcoin. And these things, they don't pan out. Yes, there are, there are some elements of some of these technologies that are for real and, and are helpful, but I, I'm, and will have some enduring value. But I'm talking about the attitude, again, going back to this idea, why do we have to assume that every problem has a high-tech solution? Some, some problems may have a high-tech solution, but why do we have to begin with that assumption? Because some, some problems can be addressed with technology that's 20 years old. Some problems are best addressed with technology that's, you know, 500 years old. You know, paper and a printing press will, will do it for, for some of the books that Chris is, uh, is, is publishing of his posts and, and, his, um, and his reader comments. Um, we had part of the comment, comment board was talking about the advantage of some of these older technologies. By the way, there's, there's some love this evening for Schwinn bicycles. <laughs> so not everything is uh, the latest and so-called greatest. Uh, what are these hoverboards and uh, scooters and everything else? Nah, the good old-fashioned Schwinn bicycle, you can ride it. It's fun. It looks good. It's efficient. It lasts forever. It's solid. Why don't we spend more time looking for some of those kinds of solutions rather than jumping to these conclusions, uh, jumping to these conclusions that it has to be the latest and greatest? The last thing I want to point out is that I came across a Washington Post article from November 10, uh, which was, I, I forget the date that I recorded the interview with Chris, but it was, it was around the time that we talked. So purely by coincidence, I saw this article, and the headline is, Pigeons are still sometimes faster than your internet. So apparently, um, well, let me just read you this, this poll quote from this article, and there's a link to it on the playlist. Even in areas with high-speed internet, pigeons can and have beat the internet with large enough data. Earlier this year, um, software developer, do I have to read this? YouTuber, a guy named Jeff Geerling strapped three terabytes worth of flash drives onto a pigeon. The pigeon won against his super fast gigabit fiber internet. Now, I didn't go, go into uh, Google's toxic soup of, of algorithmically served videos to find out exactly what was happening there, but I like the idea of this experiment of putting some flash drives, you know, those little thumb drives onto a pigeon and seeing if it can go from point A to point B, if that delivers a large amount of data, data faster than what the fiber internet could do. And there's this interesting graph, I've put it on the playlist from the Washington Post article, 
And it's um, basically what it says is if you are transmitting data uh, within a small area, you know, locally, uh, let's just say within the area that, within the range that a pigeon could easily fly, if it's a lot of data, use a pigeon. That's going to get there faster. If you have to uh, go a much further distance, you know, halfway around the world, then it's probably not as efficient to use uh, pigeons. <laughs> use the internet in that case. Hey, friends, I'm out of time. This has been a lot of fun. I want you to stay tuned for Dave Mandel coming right up. Um, and in the, in the vein of low-tech solutions, we're going to hear an outro by Linus Ackeson playing the Presto Movement from Vivaldi's Summer performed on Commodore-based instruments. And you're going to be hearing that on the world's greatest radio station, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Next week, it'll be station manager Ken. And uh, so I'll see you in two weeks. In the meantime, friends, you know what to do. Avoid Apple, abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Eventually just... Thank you, gentlemen. That's yes, my standard intro theme. And welcome, everybody. Nice to be back here. This show is called It's Complicated. My name is Dave Mandel. I'm here. I'm the host of this show. I'm here every Monday at 7 p.m. following Hot on the Heels of Tectonic. Thrilled to be here, always, goes without saying. And thanks for joining me tonight. We have an hour, 60 minutes of Prague and Prague adjacent music for you. And boy, it's going to be good. I'm going to start tonight's show with a track, with a folky, a folky piece, a folkish piece from a guy named Andy Boll, B-O-L-E. 
He is English. He's from Birmingham, Birmingham, I believe. And we're going to hear the title track from a release that came out in 2004 called Ramshackle Pier. Uh, Andy Bowl is a, a guitarist. He's played with uh, he's played with David Allen, I believe, of Gong. His little little sideways prog connection there. And this is this is. Uh, an atypical track from this this album. It's not a particularly proggy album, although it's a very good album. I bought it, and uh, you should too. It's a- available on Bandcamp. But this track is is very weird and very proggy. So here we go, Andy Bowl. Thank mm-hmm. you. 